athletes as you watch. Many of you have been watching some football lately. And what you see on game day has been followed by hours and weeks and months and years of practicing and practicing and practicing so that maybe they could be at peak performance on, on game day. Because repetition is a powerful force. Um, in fact, repetition uh, forms habits. Repetition can form good habits or bad habits. Any of you in here have some bad habits? <clears throat> Men, ask your wives if they're sitting next to you. <clears throat> maybe, maybe you are a noisy eater. Does that bother anybody? Noisy eater. Or this one's been rough for you the last few years. If you're a close talker, anybody a close talker? Maybe you're a knuckle cracker, right? Or a pin clicker. We got any pin clickers? Hard in a meeting and somebody's click, 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 click their pen. Or maybe you're a long storyteller. I'm guilty a little bit. It's hard for me to sometimes tell a short story. So repetition can form good habits. It can form bad habits. And in our text today, we're going to see some repetition. We're going to see a repeated pattern. And it's actually going to serve as hopefully not only a motivation, or rather not only a, a warning, but a motivation. And I've titled the message today, in thinking about the power of repetition, I've titled the message today, if you do the same old things, what? You get the same old results. If you do the same old things, you'll get the same old results. So here we are. Following up last week from Dean's sermon with the selection of the deacons, Stephen being one of those deacons, he is now on trial before a religious council made up a little bit of the Sanhedrin and a whole lot of some synagogue leaders from the area. And Stephen de delivers in our passage today one of the best sermons, probably, that was ever preached. One of the best sermons ever preached. Why? Because the text tells us that Stephen was, number one, full of the Holy Spirit, and he was, number two, a student of the Word of God. Those two things are mutually inclusive. If you want to really be a student of the Word of God, then you need to be filled with God's Spirit. And if you want to be filled with God's Spirit, you're really going to have to get into the Word of God. Those things go together, mutually inclusive. And so Stephen delivers a powerful sermon, and it's, it could come across... At a, at a quick read, as just a long history lesson, but it's not just a history lesson, but rather <clears throat> through the power of the Holy Spirit, for Stephen, it is a calculated account to bring about a specific revelation to this council, because the Jewish leaders had misunderstood the Old Testament, surprisingly, misunderstood the Old Testament, and therefore, they now misunderstood Jesus. They misunderstood the Messiah. So we're going to see this repeated pattern. And here's the pattern that I want you to notice today. Three words. Selection, rejection, suspension. Let me say it again. Selection, rejection, suspension. Throughout history, in a sovereign act of grace, God has again and again given people opportunity. And in, in our text, has selected leaders to lead them. God has given us opportunity, and again and again throughout history, the people of God have rejected God's gracious provision, rejection. And as a result, the blessing of God, the plan of God, oftentimes is put on hold or suspended. 
So I want you to follow this pattern, selection, rejection, suspension, as we move through probably four revolutions of this pattern in our scriptures today. Let's look at verse 8. And again, remember, I'm going to be skipping ahead some as we go through this. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of power, excuse me, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then verse 12 says, they came upon him, seized him. And brought him to the council. Because of these, not only the signs that he was doing, but the things that he was saying. They brought him to this council. Verse 13. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Now, there's more there. But basically what they're accusing Stephen of, these are his charges. They're charging him with blasphemy against the temple and blasphemy against the law and really in a lot of ways against Moses himself. In fact, some of the, there might be some allusion here to the fact that they were also accusing Stephen of speaking out the holy name of God. Because you see, since the 300 B.C., it was uh, a tradition or a custom of the Jewish people that you did not say or write the holy name of God. So he may have been doing that. What we know for certain is that he was threatening their customs. He was threatening their traditions. All traditions aren't bad. All customs aren't bad when submitted to the word of God, right? But when elevated above the word of God, they become a problem. And so they accused him of blasphemy against the temple and against the law. We'll go deeper into that in a moment. But what's ironic is verse 15. When they looked at Stephen, they saw the face, this council who's out to get him, saw the face of an angel. What does that mean? It means his face glowed. Why is that ironic? Because what happened to Moses when he came off the mountain and had been in the presence of God? His face glowed. He had the face of an angel. In the presence of God. Now here's Stephen. They're accusing him of these charges. And they're accusing him of charges against Moses, whom they revered, who in the presence of God, his face glowed. Now Stephen's face is glowing like an angel. Now verse 1, chapter 7. The priest says to him, are these things so? In other words, Stephen, how do you plead? Are you guilty? Are you not guilty? Are you guilty of blasphemy or not guilty of blasphemy? And then we begin to see... The story, the history, the powerful message that Stephen brings to the people. And he begins to tell the story of a man named Joseph. Now, he starts with a man named Abraham. So we're going to see the selection of Abraham and then the selection of Joseph to lead God's people. If you were to look at verses 2 to 5, in the beginning of his message, Stephen reminds his accusers that it was their God who appeared to Abraham. It was their God who appeared to Abraham. And guess what? He didn't come to the council. And he didn't come before the, the, them in the holy city of Jerusalem. But he found this man, this Abraham, who had become the father of the nation of Israel. He found him in a pagan province called Mesopotamia. And he told him that through you I'm going to do something amazing. That your descendants, in fact, will possess a land that I'm going to give you. And so the God of glory, it says... In those verses 2 through 5, God of glory appeared to Father Abraham. Have you ever wondered why? Why Abraham? Well, all I can say is that it was a sovereign act of God to choose anybody, much less Abraham. But here we have the beginning of God's plan, the beginning of God's selection. Now look at, me, look at uh, verse 6 with me. But God spoke in this way, 
that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Verse 8, then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Okay, so God calls Abraham out of a, a pagan land into a place that he was not familiar with and says, I'm going to do something through your people, ultimately going to bring a Messiah. He selects Abraham, but he knew that there would be a coming time of slavery of his people, that his people would be enslaved in a foreign land. And because his people would be enslaved in a foreign land, it says he established with them the covenant of circumcision. This was a sign. It was a permanent distinction among God's people. God's people are to stand apart, right? We're to be different. We're to look different. So it was a distinction made within God's people. And we find over in places like Colossians 2 where we get the spiritual meaning behind circumcision when it talks about the circumcision of the heart. That there is and needs to be in the people of God a cutting away of sin and a cleansing that could only come through Jesus ultimately. Only come through the Messiah. And so we see this selection of Abraham preparing the way for the story that, that, that Stephen really wanted to get to. The story of Joseph in verse 9. We see Abraham selected. We're going to see Joseph selected, but then rejected. It says, verse 9, the patriarchs, that's his relatives, right? The patriarchs sold Joseph into Egypt, but God delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh. And it even says later in that verse that God made him governor over Egypt. Okay, now we see God select a man named Joseph. Now, how did he come about? Remember, who was his daddy? Who's Joseph's dad? Anybody? Jacob? Jacob, Jacob before, before Jacob got Rachel, who did he have to work for? Well, he worked for Rachel, but he got Leah. And then he worked more, and he got Rachel, because Rachel is the one that he really loved. Well, guess who's the mama to Joseph? Rachel. And so guess whom Joseph, who, who was favored by Jacob? Joseph. And through a series of dreams that Joseph probably shared a little bit arrogantly, perhaps, but through a series of dreams, nonetheless, God selected Joseph. And he chose him to lead Israel. And what do we read about where it said the patriarchs, that was Joseph's brothers. What did his brothers do? They grew jealous of Joseph's position. And so what did they decide? That they would get rid of him. But rather than kill him, they threw him in a pit. They sold him to a slave caravan. And off to Egypt he went. And still, God gave Joseph wisdom even in this foreign land, and he became the governor of Egypt. And we're told in the next verses that it is through Joseph that God actually delivered Israel out of Egypt. So God selected Abraham and Joseph to lead them. And what did the people of Israel do? They rejected him and said no. Then the blessing, we got the, we got the selection, we got the rejection. Here comes the suspension. The blessing is postponed. Have you ever thought about what would have happened if Joseph's brothers had not rejected him? Ever thought about that? What would have happened? What if they had not rejected him? Perhaps God's leader right then in the promised land would have risen to power in Canaan. Instead, he went to Egypt and he made the Pharaoh wealthy. The Pharaoh, because of Joseph's uh, wisdom from God, was able to buy up all the land. What would have happened if Joseph had stayed in the land? 
Maybe Jacob would have owned all the property. Maybe he would have led Israel there, but that's not what happened. They rejected Joseph, and because of that, the famine came. Right? Remember the story? The famine came. Stephen's ultimately leading to, always pointing to in this passage, Jesus. All the way through this story, Jesus. When we reject Jesus, spiritual famine comes in our life. So the blessing of inheriting the promised land was suspended for 430 years. Wow. 430 years they were enslaved. Didn't have to be. So he retells the story of Joseph, and now he goes on to the rejection of Moses. Look at verse 20. Just going to read the first few words. At this time, Moses was born. Now we've got another selection. God selects another leader, another deliverer. Israel was enslaved. Pharaoh's heart grew colder. At this time, Moses was born. A new deliverer was raised up by God for the people. And it says in the text that he was lovely in the sight of God, that he was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and that he was powerful in both word and deed. He sounds like a superhero. And indeed, he was a super deliverer for Israel. So God selected and raised up this Moses. But what happens? In verses 23 to 25, at the age of 40, Moses one day is walking through the, through the land and he sees an Egyptian beating an Israeli. He knew that that was his people. And so it says in verse 25, and I want you to read this, something interesting. Moses, it says that Moses killed that Egyptian for what he was doing. Okay? Moses took his life for beating the Israeli. Verse 25 for he supposed that his brethren, the Jewish people, he supposed that they would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, by Moses, his hand. But they did not understand. They did not understand. Why? They rejected Moses. They turned Moses away. God raised up, selected a deliverer. Israel could have, should have understood, but they reject Moses. And then you notice that the next day, Next day after that, Moses is, tr is trying to reconcile a fight that breaks out between two Jewish people. And as they're, as they're fighting, and by the way, let me point out, Moses has now been a mediator among the, in, with the Egyptian. He's been a mediator among the Gentiles. Now he's being a mediator among the Jewish people. You see the connection? Like Jesus, Moses was a mediator of Gentiles and Jews. There's a lot of... Man, there's so much in this message. We're not going to get all this covered. There's so much illusion here. Powerful, powerful imagery. So the next day, he sees these two guys fighting, and you know what they tell him? Mind your own business. In fact, we saw what you did. We saw you kill that man, and we're going to turn you in if you don't get out of here. Do you all know what Moses did? He fled to Midian. They rejected him. He fled to Midian. There he married a foreign woman named Zipporah. And he had two sons. So, Joseph could have led, should have led Canaan, but is rejected and ends up leading in Egypt. Moses could have led Israel, but is rejected and now raises two boys by a foreign woman in a foreign land. And guess what? God selected Moses. They rejected Moses. Now what? Blessing postponed. Here comes the suspension. Verse 35 says that they rejected Moses as ruler and judge as ruler and judge they failed to understand that god had sent him they would not listen 
They would not see that God had sent him. What if they had to listen to Moses? You thought about that? What if they'd listen to Moses right then? Here's a man educated in the learning of the Egyptians. He had, very, he, was, he had a very good position and power within that land. He was powerful in words. What could he have done? But they rejected him. And now they had to wait upon the grace of God to send Moses back. It was 40 years later when Moses uh, finally saw God in the burning bush. And God said, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to get these people who've rejected you already. I want you to get them out and bring them into the land that I've promised. They rejected Moses, and it cost them 40 more years of slavery because of their rejection, and the blessing was postponed. Wow. So they've rejected Joseph. They've rejected Moses. Now look in verse 35. We see the replacement of God and his law. God sends a deliverer again, this time same guy. He sends Moses back, verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, it says, God sent, skipping over a little bit, God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer. Verse 36, he brought them out, out of Egypt. Verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. That's a Christophany, an occurrence of, of the Lord. Um, spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. This is the one who was on Mount Sinai with God and received the living oracles. So again, God selects someone to carry out his plan among his people. He raises up this man to be specifically a ruler and a deliverer. He did wonders and, and signs in Egypt, Moses did. He led them out of bondage. He parted the Red Sea for them to walk across. And in spite of the fact that they had already rejected Moses, God shows the people of Israel how to live by giving Moses the living oracles. You know what that means? The Word of God. He gave Moses his word for the people. Wow, that's powerful. He gave us the living oracles through Moses. So they, he selected Moses again, and guess what they do in verse 39? What does it say? And in their hearts, they turned what? Back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. They reject Moses. He's led them out. He's brought them to Sinai. He's able to bring them into the land, they reject him and chose slavery over the word of God. If you remember specifically, they got tired of waiting on Moses. Yeah, we don't know where he's at. He's up there on that mountain. We're not sure he's coming back. And what did they do? They replaced him with a golden calf. Remember that story? I wonder if we, the church, is in jeopardy of the same thing as we're waiting on Jesus idolatry an idol is anything that replaces God in our lives anything that replaces God in your life can be an idol it can be comfort I want to be comfortable boy we were bad here in America we really have no idea so you go to some place like Nicaragua and you see 
how they live until you go to the underground church in China and see what they do to share the word of God. An idol can be comfort. It can be, this is a big one for today, your identity can be an idol. God's already told you who you are. He's already given you your identity. You trust him for that. And it can become an idol for you. Of course, money, I don't know. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit right now to put something in your mind that might be your idol. So they reject him. They build an idol. And guess what happens? Verse 42, blessing postponed. It says, God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun and the moon and the stars. In other words, he said, you've got your idols, you can have them. See what you get. So Israel had an idolatry problem from then on. I'm not saying they didn't before that, but they had a heavy idolatry problem from then on, right up until the, Babylon, the Babylonians destroyed the temple. And if you're reading through that text, you'll see one of the gods that they worshipped was a god named Moloch. They actually sacrificed their children to the flames, their babies. They gave their children to the flames, to the god of Moloch, because they felt as though he would give them prosperity and success and other children. And so they gave their children over to the flames. You might say, wow, how barbaric. And yet today, Moloch is worshipped. As parents say, you know what, it's a lot more convenient for me and financially beneficial if I just abort this baby. So we sacrifice to the God of Moloch still today. Wow. By the way, if you haven't gotten a baby bottle from the uh, Cleveland Pregnancy Center, grab one of those after this service and uh, fill that up because they're fighting against uh, this issue. Idolatry was a direct consequence of their sin at Sinai. It says, God gave them over. Did you notice that in 42? God turned away from them and gave them over. That reminded me of something in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. It says, it says they became fools. The people of God, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then it says, therefore, God gave them over. In, their lust, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them over to impurity. So, God selects Moses again. They reject Moses and God. Each time they reject a man, they're rejecting God because that was God's man. They reject him again, and now we see the blessing for Israel is postponed for over 800 years. Now, you, you say, well, they entered into the promised land. Yes, they did. Well, they had the temple. Yes, they did. But they had no lasting intimate relationship with the Father. Not as a whole. They had no lasting intimate relationship with the Father. Because they were always turning to those idols. And letting those idols, their will, their self-will, their pride, letting all of that lead them astray. And so once again, the blessed life and the promised land that God had for them eluded them. Because they continually rejected those God had sent to deliver them. So we've seen them reject Joseph. We've seen them reject Moses. We've seen them reject Moses again. Now, in verse 44 to 48, Stephen begins to comment on their temple. He's giving them this history all the way through. Abraham, Joseph, Moses. Joseph, Moses. And now he says, let me talk to you about this temple. And how you've misunderstood worship and misunderstood the purpose of the temple. Because this time, we're going to see that God has selected himself, 
that he will come, Emmanuel, will come and he will dwell among men. But we're told specifically in verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. So God had shown Moses a pattern to build the tabernacle. And Moses built the tabernacle. And Joshua brought the tabernacle with the people into the promised land. David led a lot of worship at the temple uh, that was built. And then Solomon built a temple, or excuse me, David at the tabernacle led a lot of worship. Solomon then built the temple. David wasn't allowed to. But the point was clear throughout all of this tabernacle and temple time that God always chooses to dwell among his people. That's what God has wanted from the beginning, is fellowship with you. To restore what was lost with Adam and Eve. That's God's goal. To, to, to make a way whereby you can come in and fellowship with him. Have relationship with him. And so God selects a way where he might dwell amongst the people. And God did for Israel what he has done for no other nation. At Sinai, in fact, God was so disgusted with these people that he told Moses, I'm not going with you. Moses, y'all can go on from here. I'm not going. What did Moses do? He interceded. He pled for the people. God agreed, it says. And he said, I will dwell in their midst in the tabernacle. I will dwell in their midst in the temple. And the whole point is the name Jehovah Shammah, which means the Lord is there among his people. The Lord is there. So God himself has now come into their midst. And what happens? They reject him. How would they do it this time? Well, they replaced God with the temple. <laughs> wow, isn't that ironic? They forgot God and reverenced the temple. That's what's happening right here in our text. That's why they're saying to Stephen, you have blasphemed the temple because the temple, not God, not the God of the temple, but the temple is what became important to them. Their customs, their practices, their religion, their traditions, their pride, their selfishness, their bitterness. They forgot God and reverenced the temple. Instead of a place for the presence of God, the temple became a prison for God. You see, we're so bad about worshiping the created over the creator. We can even be doing that right here at CBC. Worshiping the created rather than creator. People treasured, they treasured the temple and they turned the house of God into a den of robbers. And they rejected God for the love of the temple. If you noticed in the text, again, I know we've had 70 verses to go through here, but if you noticed back in there, there was one point, I don't remember what verse, but where they were also accusing Stephen of, of sharing the, the, the story about Jesus saying that he would destroy and tear down that temple. Whoa, we're going to tear down our temple. God, you're not going to tear down my temple. What's your idol? What's your temple? Then we come to the conclusion of Stephen's message. And guess what? We come to the realization that the problem is you. What? Yeah, because you see, we're all on trial at this point in the story. Verse 51 through 53. You know what Stephen tells him? Stephen says, I'm not blaspheming God. 
I'm not rejecting the law. You are. You are. He says, you're stiff-necked. You, you refuse to lower your head. You will not bow down. You will not submit to the God whom you call God, but truly don't treat as though he is. He said, you are uncircumcised in your heart. Again, a metaphor for the cutting away of pride and the cutting away of sin. You are sinful and you do not even know it. You will not even admit it. And he goes on and he says, you always resist. You will not hear the Holy Spirit. Remember, Acts is a book all about the Holy Spirit of God. You will not hear the Holy Spirit. You reject the Spirit's messengers and you reject the Spirit's message. Your fathers, they killed the prophets who foretold the coming of the just one, the Messiah. You, he points to them, you, you do what your fathers did, plus you killed the Messiah himself. You killed the Messiah and you're still killing God's deliverer through the rejection of his Holy Spirit and his word. Wow. Powerful message, huh? Over and over, they should have seen, should have seen that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. I mean, Joseph himself was a foreshadowing of Christ. He was the deliverer that was rejected by his brothers, but one day saved them. Moses was a foreshadowing of Christ, left his home to deliver his people, first rejected, but then came again and delivered them. In fact, in this sermon, Stephen has just been slowly drawing them down to this point to say, you've rejected Jesus. There is implicit typological parallel throughout the whole message, and they didn't see it. They rejected him again and again and again. And now the Israeli leadership has rejected him again. Guess what? The millennium was ready. The times of refreshing could have come, but they rejected the Messiah, and the blessing was suspended again, put on hold. And Stephen lets them know about it. <laughs> I just wonder if there could be any pattern for my life here. Is that possible? Could there be any pattern for our lives? God's selection and my rejection and the postponement of what God wants to do in my life. His plan. His blessing. Let's think about a few applications right quick of this text. Now, I don't know what all God's voice might speak to you about this, but here are a few things that I thought about. Number one, discipleship, which is what Stephen was, a disciple, a follower. You see, Christians are called to be disciples, but not all Christians are disciples. Because it means follow. So discipleship means sacrifice, to surrender, to even at times permit injury or disadvantage for the sake of something. To surrender, to permit injury or disadvantage for the sake of something. Uh, Stephen rebuked the leadership for rejecting Jesus. And it says they were jealous and they turned the crowds against him, just like they did with Jesus, and they stoned him. And yet Stephen still did not back away from great sacrifice. Dean shared last week how he became one of the deacons, a diakonos, a servant. Stephen did not back away from being a deacon or from serving the church. And guess what? Because of that, his world changed. And we're told in chapter 6, verse 8, that he did these extraordinary wonders, great wonders and signs among the people. 
So for Stephen, because God selected him, this opportunity, he did not reject it. And for him, doors were open that you could never imagine. Not just physical doors, but spiritual doors into the kingdom of God. His faith in Jesus uh, gave him courage and, and, and gave him the conviction to sacrifice, even to pay the ultimate price. As we're going to read about in just a moment, he paid the ultimate price. So we need to realize, as he stands before, it took great nerve to stand before this group of people and say uh, the things that he said. So discipleship means sacrifice. But I also want you to know that God does extraordinary work through those who are filled with his spirit. That's another thing Acts is all about, the, how the, the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Christ were filled with God's spirit and able to go out and do the things that he called them to do. So discipleship means sacrifice, but God does extraordinary work through those who are filled with the spirit of God. I'm sure you could think of somebody right now whom you admire and you know that God does extraordinary things through them, and it's because they are filled with God's spirit. Stephen was gifted with wisdom to know how to serve the poor. He was called to do that as a deacon. He was gifted with boldness to preach passionately before this Sanhedrin and synagogue leaders. And even in his stoning, the people got a glimpse of God's grace enabling him to face suffering and to face the ultimate penalty, which is death, the ultimate price. And so that says to me, then I need a daily filling of God's Spirit in order to do the extraordinary things that God has planned for me. So what's standing in the way of Kevin being filled with God's Spirit? And it's pretty simple. It's pretty much all the way Kevin and sin. It's me. Right? It's not the devil made me do it. It's not the neighbor you got a problem with. It's not the, GNA, the DNA you were born with. It's not the da 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 The problem is sin. And if I'll humble myself, and as a believer, trust, that, that, that trust the Father, repent of my sin as a believer, turn to Him, ask Him to cleanse me, then I'll be filled with His Spirit. Extraordinary, God does extraordinary work for those, through those who are filled with His Spirit. And grace to endure comes when you need it. Not always before, but it comes when you need it. Grace to endure comes when you need it. Paul taught a lot about that in 2 Corinthians 12, that God's grace is sufficient for every situation and every type of suffering, of, of suffering that we could endure. Grace came when Stephen needed it the most. I promise, the Holy Spirit rather promises, that he'll equip you for every situation. In fact, Jesus told the disciples, when you go, they said, what about what we're going to face? What about the persecution? He said, don't worry about handle, how to handle the persecution. My grace is sufficient, right? I'll, I'll help you. Trust God to provide what you need at that moment. There's grace to endure when you need it. And here's the last thing that I want to point out. It is foolish to reject what I'm going to call a God opportunity, <laughs> a God opportunity. It is foolish to reject a God opportunity. The blessing was suspended. Because Israel would not submit to God's will. So let me challenge you today. Do not be stiff-necked. Do not be uncircumcised in heart. Full of pride. Not willing for the word of God. Through the sacrifice that Christ has made. The power of God's Holy Spirit to cut away that, that flesh that doesn't need to be there. Don't have ears that are always resisting the Holy Spirit. 
I couldn't possibly imagine what all he might be saying. Maybe why haven't you forgiven that person? Why do you keep rejecting me? I'm going to do something great when you do. I'm going to do something great for them. I'm going to do something great in your life. But you're holding on to the past and that bitterness. There could be many examples of how we're not hearing. And rejecting the prompting of the Holy Spirit is still idolatry. It's still idolatry. That's what it is. It's, it's making an idol out of me. And so Stephen gives this powerful message, full of the Spirit of God, knowing the Word of God. Look at verse 54. We're going to read out how this, clo- we're going to see how this closes, how this ends. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They were angry. They weren't just angry. They were bitter. They weren't just bitter. They were having a fit. (laughs) They rejected a God opportunity. Verse 55. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Dean pointed out last week that we know that Jesus, upon ascending after his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But here we see an extraordinary moment when one who was full of his spirit, full of his word, standing before him, about to die, about to give his life, we see Jesus now standing. Verse 56, Stephen said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. Angry mob. Skip to verse 59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice. Wow, look at these words. Same thing Jesus said. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He just fell asleep. So, discipleship involves sacrifice. Is is that why you've been rejecting the voice of God? But God does extraordinary work through those who are full, full of his spirit. Amazing things. There'll be grace whenever you need it. Is that why you've been rejecting God? Because you don't feel as though you've got the grace you need? Stephen would say to us standing here today, don't reject the voice of the one bringing you God's selection. You know what? Maybe you're here today and you're not sure of the answer to this question. Where would you go right now if you died? Where would you go? I can stand before you and say 100% without hesitation, I'd go to be with Jesus. Why? Because I'm so good? No, I've sat here and told you today that I'm not. That I'm idolatrous. Because salvation is a gift of God. The penalty of sin is eternal death, eternal separation from the Father. That's why he sent his Son, so that you might be restored in fellowship to him. And what do you do? You don't do anything. You simply believe, you trust. You put your trust in Jesus as Savior. You've been hearing that, maybe? Maybe God's been trying to tell you that through circumstances, things in your life recently. Maybe the voice of God has been trying to woo you to himself and say, hey, trust me. Maybe today is the day that you stop rejecting the Savior. But probably many of us in this room, and by the way, I want to call the worship team, if you would, go ahead and come to the front. 
By the way, maybe many of you here today are believers. What has God been calling you to do? Have you been griping and grumbling about it? You've been rejecting it? I did this last week. Something really small, really, really seemingly insignificant. And in fact, it's something that I don't really even know yet how it's going to turn out. But let me explain. My wife can attest to the fact that over the last three or four months, I have had jury duty for three times, three or four times. I don't know if any of you are over that somehow. Please take my name and at least move it down a little bit. Give me a few, a year, maybe a year. No, see, that's part of the problem. I got, I got jury duty this last, was it Monday? This last Monday. And I knew about it, of course, a week or two in advance. And, I'm, you know, I'm texting. As soon as it says 5 o'clock rolls around, is this thing off? Do I got to go? I've been complaining to Mindy. I've been complaining to Lauren. I do not want to go have to serve on this jury. Why do I keep getting selected? Selected. <laughs> uh, sure enough, it's on. Got to show up down at the courthouse. It's freezing cold that morning, got to be there at 8.15, and the line is out the door, down the steps, and way down their side of the building, and I'm standing there, and it's cold, and I'm complaining some more, all right, griping, why is this happening? Sure enough, we get into the building, and they've got technical difficulties. The computer's not working right, they can't get their information out, and so now we're waiting longer, and I'm waiting longer. And I'm waiting longer, and I'm looking at, well, I don't wear a watch, but I'm looking at my phone, see what time it is, what in the world is happening, why is this happening? Then he gets, the, the gentleman gets to the platform, and he begins to call out the names of those who've got to go upstairs, right, to stay, and you're going to get a nice green card. And he calls out name after name after name after name after name after name, and my name doesn't get called. Whew. My name doesn't get called. And so on the way out, we've got to get out of the room now because he's fixing to give them instructions. And on the way out, I see a woman who's got the green card. And I know her from my past. I was for years her pastor at another church. And that was a very troubled time in her life, a very difficult time in her life. God did some things in her life. Um, tried to, some things that she rejected and wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't listen to. Um, and he gave her great grace. I didn't get to do anything but say hello to her. That was it. Oh, I'm sorry you got the card. Good seeing you. God bless you. Walked out. I thought nothing else about it. Until I'm looking over this message and I'm thinking, Lord, where have I fought you this week? And he says, in jury duty. And the thought came to me, what could God be doing with her right now because she saw me? You see, that happens. People see you and they remember something that happened. They remember a circumstance. They remember an event. They remember a time when this happened. And it causes them to... That, that's how the Holy Spirit is subtle like that. That's how he works. Just subtly planting opportunities and circumstances. And I have to tell you, a great... Guilt came over me at that moment, and I thought, wow, there's maybe, maybe, I don't know. I haven't reached out to this lady yet. I'm praying about it, but maybe God has done something, or maybe it's going to be because now I'm going to reach out to her. I, I don't know. My point is this. There's all kinds of ways that God is trying to use us every day, and we're so busy, 
We're so caught up in ourselves that we're rejecting these great opportunities that God has given us, that he wants to do extraordinary work through you. Now, that's a tiny example. There are much more grave examples and much more important things where God might be leading you to witness to the neighbor that you're refusing to share the gospel with. Okay? So, Stephen just went to sleep. I pray that, I pray that I'll have such a presence of God in my life and know that I've done, not perfectly, but that I've done what he's called me to do, that when my time comes, I'll be able to just go to sleep. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your powerful word, Lord. Um, Lord, I thank you for this sermon that Stephen gave, um, not just a history lesson, but something that would penetrate the hearts of people. And Lord, I think there was something you were doing in this story that we didn't even talk about because the text tells us that there was a man there standing by holding the coats, a man named Saul. And somehow, by selecting Stephen to die, you were preparing Saul's heart where he might become Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament. Lord, we have no idea the opportunities we've missed because we've rejected your voice. So for those, we ask for forgiveness. But today, let us today hear your voice and do what you've called us to do, for we have no clue what, it might, what impact it might make. We give you praise and glory, Lord, for your opportunities. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with us as we close in song today? Jesus, my song inside.